One of the TV shows we watched as a kid, I don't know how often I watch it, but I have a memory of it, is the old show hosted by Robert Stack called Unsolved Mysteries. I don't know if any of you remember that show. I think it was on either before or after Rescue 911, and uh, both of those shows were kind of docudrama type shows where they do reenactments of situations. And for Unsolved Mysteries, they were reenacting cases that had not been solved. So these were murders or missing persons or um, crimes that just had not been solved yet. And sometimes even supernatural things like alien abductions and UFO sightings and paranormal and ghost stories, all things that could not be explained. Uh, This show presented them to you and reenacted dramas and the viewers were enthralled by it. A couple of cases were actually solved because of that show, because when you, when you put it out for the, for the masses, for everybody to see and somebody makes a connection, so they did solve a few cases from the show. But it was popular you know, back in the early to mid-90s, and I think the popularity of the show speaks to um, a couple things in us. One, we have uh, kind of a desire to see the transcendent or things that we are beyond our grasp and beyond our understanding. And two, we like to figure out how that could be. We want the mystery and we want it explained. And we have both of those things happen in our text this morning. We have a miraculous occurrence, something that is uh, supernatural, phenomenal, something that um, was spellbinding for people, causing awe and wonder and excitement. And then... More importantly than the miracle itself, we have the explanation that Peter gives about this miracle. Uh, Peter will stand up and address the crowd and give an explanation to the mystery of the healing. Peter will explain that there is meaning to this miracle, that there is reason for what they have just seen. The miracle is meant to point to a fuller and greater reality, and that's what Peter will unpack for us this morning and throughout all of Acts chapter 3. The meaning of the miracle is this, that full healing is found by faith in the name of Jesus. There's a few words thrown together, but if you're a Christian, if you've been a Christian for a long time, that is not necessarily new information. This is not necessarily all that... um, yeah, mind-blowing as far as fresh new insight goes. This is a simple truth of the Christian faith, but it's pivotal and something that the church needed to understand and, and those who are going to come into the church need to understand that full healing is found by faith in the name of Jesus. That is what the miracle points to, this reality, this truth of where full healing is found. This miracle, this healing of a paralyzed man is the first apostolic miracle in the book of Acts. There are about 14 miracles in the book of Acts, including healings, deliverances, even resurrections from the dead. And all of these miracles done point to the fact that the apostles, as they carried out their ministry, were in the line of Jesus. They were carrying on Jesus' ministry, empowered by the Spirit, that this new thing that was happening, and Christians gathering together and worshiping and performing these signs, that this was all part and a continuation of the ministry of Jesus Christ. And they're meant to point to Jesus as the Savior who heals all. Full healing is found by faith in his name. First, I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. Here we'll see the healing performed. So here's just an account of the healing itself in verses 1 through 10. 
that starts off this whole scene and actually really continues into chapter 4. We're going to just look at chapter 3 today, starting here, verses 1 through 10, the healing performed. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So our scene begins with Peter and John, and maybe some other disciples were with them, but they're going to church. They are going to the temple. It was as early on in the life of the church, the very beginning. And they're there at the ninth hour of the day, 3 p.m., and that is the time when they would prepare the sacrifice and prepare to worship for the evening sacrifice. So that sacrifice is being prepared. They were there to, to worship. What's interesting about this is that they're still integrated into the Jewish life, right? They're still taking part in sacrificial worship. They had not yet fully worked out all of their theology of Christ as the once-for-all sacrifice. They had not yet made a split with uh, the Jewish community. They were still Jews themselves. That split where Christianity becomes its true, separate, distinct thing won't happen really finally until about 70 AD when the temple is destroyed. But up until then, there's this, especially at the beginning, an intermingling of Jew and follower of Christ. And you'll see here in Peter's sermon that that makes sense. That, in fact, Christ was the fulfillment of Jewish hope. But they're there, they're worshiping at the temple, and they go up, and they go to a gate that's known as the beautiful gate. And we're not entirely sure exactly which gate this is. It maybe most likely a gate called the Nicanor Gate, and it was overlaid in Corinthian bronze, so it became known as the Beautiful Gate. It was probably on the eastern side of the temple. And it was one of the gates you would walk through, separating different courts in the temple. And in the temple, at that time, there were about four courts before going into kind of the inner part of the temple. There was the court of priests, the innermost court, then the court of Israelites, and in that court, only those who were purified Jewish men could enter. Then they had kind of the outer inner court, which is the court of women, it was called. And then outside of that, the court of Gentiles. And that was as far as Gentiles could enter. And this gate probably connected the court of Gentiles to the court of women. And there at that gate sat this paralyzed man, and everybody knew him. Everybody recognized who he was. He was carried there often by people to sit and beg. He was a recognized person. I was reminded, weirdly enough, as I was thinking about this, as a guy that um, 
we all knew in high school. He was one of those uh, people around the neighborhood, or for us around the city, that everybody looks at, nobody knows, but they know, oh, that guy. And I don't know if you had one of these guys or gals in your town growing up, but it was the kind of person where you say, we all know who that is, but we don't know who that is. And the reason we all knew who this person was is because this person would uh, stand on busy street corners outside of our kind of suburb of Las Vegas where I was in high school, and he would sit there in a tire that was befitting of a professional wrestler, often with a bandana, and he would have a guitar, an electric guitar, that was plugged into an amp that I'm sure wasn't also plugged into electricity, um, and he would sit there on the street corner wailing on the guitar, yelling at people. And I remember once distinctly as I was driving down, I was listening to my music in my Subaru station wagon, which is the car of the Northwest. Um, and I was listening loudly to some type of rock music. And he looked at me and he goes, Metallica! You know, and just yelling. And he was, now, I have no idea what his name was. Nobody knew what his name was, but we all knew that guy. Because we'd all had encounters with that guy just rocking down on the street corner doing his non-plugged-in electric guitar thing. He's one of those guys. This paralyzed guy, we don't know his name, but everybody kind of knew him. They're familiar with him. He was there daily, asking for alms, for support. Peter and John take notice of him. And as they pass by, they tell him to look up. And he expects to receive money, and they say, no, we have something far better for you than silver and gold. And Peter says boldly, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And the man does. You'll notice the text says he doesn't just get up, but he leaps up. I don't know if you've ever seen a grown man leaping for joy. In college, we, there was a college professor, who, one of the biology profs, and I remember walking to class, and he came down the steps and just started skipping. And, <laughs> and he had his books and stuff with him and just was skipping to where he was going next. Everybody else around was walking and he just starts skipping. And I thought to myself, it is really odd to see a grown man skip. Like, who travels that way? But he just skipped along. And here we see this man, he's leaping, it's skipping as he goes in the temple. It, Reminds me, actually, of Habakkuk 3.19. There's a verse that says, maybe you've always wondered what this means. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. I think this is kind of what deer's feet look like on a human. They bound and skip for joy. And don't miss the fact that he now went into the temple where he was kind of sitting on the outskirts now, fully healed, he goes in with Peter and John. This healing might remind you of another healing, of a paralyzed man carried there by his friends who was healed immediately. Luke 5, 17 through 26 records the story of Jesus who healed a paralyzed man who was led in through the roof by his friends and heals him. There's a big difference in how these healings take place, you'll notice that Peter here says something that Jesus never had to. Peter here invokes the name of Jesus. Jesus did not, because he was Jesus. He had all full 
authority and power in and of himself to heal. He does not need to invoke another name. He is God and the Son of Man. But Peter here invokes the name of Jesus, and he says, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. So what's going on here? Is this a magical incantation that Peter uses so that if you just add in the name of Jesus onto whatever, it will be done? I don't think that's what's going on here. I don't think we can do that, say, in the name of Jesus, do this, and then it just happens, right? That's not how that works. But Peter here recognizes, he knows that he is acting on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ and by his authority and power. So he knows he is operating underneath the authority of Jesus and by the power of Jesus. So he is able to say, in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. But we cannot do this, I don't think, just on our own will and power. Because the question might come up as we see this miracle, shouldn't we have the same power today as Christians to miraculously heal in the name of Jesus? And are there people who can just do this? Go around healing? If there was a person who had that power, they would have been really useful these last couple of years. They'd be really useful now for us as a church. Somebody who, at a whim, could heal in the name of Jesus. God can heal somebody anytime he wants to or wills. And I think he does probably more often than we realize. And I think often it isn't even all that miraculous, so we don't even register. I think God keeps us healed in ways that we probably never even register or are conscious of. And of course, God can heal at any time he wills. That does not mean people are given that authority of power. And we'll see here, Peter himself will make clear that he actually is not doing this by his power. This is something that God had given him prerogative to do in this moment. I think it's important to understand that because a lot of damage can be done by people who claim that they can do this. I was watching a, a documentary a while ago. I don't know if I've mentioned it or not. Uh, forgive me if I have. But there's a documentary called Gleason about a former uh, New Orleans Saints defensive back named Steve Gleason. He actually grew up in my hometown. He grew up in Spokane, Washington. Played a few years for the Saints, but then was diagnosed with ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. And that is a disease that causes degeneration of motor neurons that control voluntary muscles. So with Lou Gehrig's, you lose basically control of your body. It's a heartbreaking documentary, and there's one scene that was particularly heartbreaking because his, his dad comes from a religious background, and his dad is a religious guy, and his dad takes him to a faith healing service. They've tried other things and figure, why not? And they're there in a faith healing service as those who are leading and pastors and ministers communicating that if you just have enough faith, you can get up and walk. And the heartbreaking and actually angering moment of all of that is when you see the person himself wrestling with this and trying to... But more than that, you see his wife 
sitting next to him, and you can see the bitterness and rage and anger in her because she knows this isn't going to work. And you can, see, you can almost see her reject faith in that moment. By the way, it was abused. By those who claim they could just have this power, and if you just have enough faith, this will be done for you too. It's just not true. We don't have the power to manipulate God or his spirit in that way. Can God heal miraculously? Yes. Does he still do it? I think so. But we don't have the power to implement or manipulate that. I don't even think the apostles did all that often, is my guess. We have a few miracles recorded. But normally, miraculous healing in this life does not come. Why? Because God's intent is not to heal us fully in this life, but to point us toward full healing and restoration in the age to come. And that's exactly what Peter's going to talk about in this sermon. He's saying this sign here It's just a sign to something far greater that's coming. So that's what Peter does. He explains the healing, this miracle, in verses 11 through 18. He explains what this is all about and how it points to a fuller healing to come. But first he wants to explain by whose power this miracle came. Verse 11, the healing explained, verses 11 through 18. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us, as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate, when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers... I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. So they're there in what's called Solomon's portico or Solomon's porch, and that was kind of a covered area that ran along the eastern side of the temple. And Jesus spoke and ministered there. We see that in John 10, 23. And it kind of became a gathering place for the early Christians. And they gathered at Solomon's portico. And people are wondering how this happened, so Peter explains. And notice the first thing that Peter does in explaining this miracle. What does he say? Wasn't us. Wasn't me. He does what every true Christian minister or Christian should do when something miraculous and wonderful happens. That was God. Not by our own power, not by our own piety. We don't have that ability. That was God at work. And ultimately, he's going to explain to them, this was Jesus Christ at work. It has everything to do with Jesus. But you'll notice 
Peter doesn't start by directly talking about Jesus. Who does he talk about first? And why? Remember who he's speaking to. He's speaking to devoted Jews there for the afternoon worship and sacrifice. So he starts by going to their God, Yahweh, the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's making a connection to them. He wants to show them how Jesus is right in line with their God. He says the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, the God of the covenants, that same God has done this through Jesus. He glorified Jesus. You remember Jesus, right? You ask, how did this happen? How did this miraculous thing happen? Well, it happened through Jesus, that guy you had killed. The one you handed over to Pontius Pilate, uh, the one when Pilate gave you a choice, you can have Jesus or you can have Barabbas freed. Which one will it be? The murderer and insurrectionist or the one who has gone about healing and teaching in the name of God? You chose Barabbas. Set him free and you had that one killed. That same one is the one God glorified and God chose, the holy and righteous one, the holy one of God, the author of life. That's such a fascinating phrase. Think about that for a moment. The author of life you had killed. The the one through whom all things are made, who gives life to all people, who gave life to this world, all creation is made through him, you had him killed. Think about that logically. Like That should not be possible. To say, you killed life. is like saying, you made water dry. You made fire cold. Like That shouldn't even be possible. But that is how deep the rejection goes and how awful our sin and rebellion is that it accomplished the impossible. It killed the author of life. You had the author of life killed, and that's the one that God exalted. I'll mention another TV show, the, the old TV show called The Newlywed Game. Right, you know what The Newlywed Game is, where you have a married couple, and they ask them questions, and they give their answers, and you can kind of supposedly test the strength of their relationship by how similar their answers are. And the whole fun of the game is when they get answers wrong that they really should get right, and you see the awkwardness uh, and maybe even anger. How did you not know that? And this might sound blasphemous at first, but actually theologically it makes sense. Let's imagine Israel and God were playing the newlywed game. It makes sense because they're actually married, right? And the question is, how do we think about Jesus? And God raises the answer, glorified him. And Israel raised the answer, we killed him. You see, oh, they're pretty far apart on this. And that's the point that Peter's making to them. You think you are the people of God, but you are so far apart from him right now because of how you responded to his son. You 
killed the one God glorified. And Peter gives them, uh, maybe softens things a little bit, says, you did this in ignorance. You didn't know who he was. I'm reminded of what Jesus said on the cross, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. You acted in ignorance, which softens it, but it isn't a full excuse. Ignorant does not mean blameless. In the Old Testament, there were deliberate sins or sins of the high hand, and then there were unintentional sins. And in offerings and sacrifices before the priests, the penalty wasn't as severe for unintentional sins, but there was still an offering that had to be made, which tells us there's still guilt. And in fact, in Jewish thinking, in Old Testament thinking, Wisdom and knowledge are often moral categories. You read through the Proverbs and see how much knowledge and wisdom is a moral category and foolishness uh, is associated with immorality. And you go back to Adam and Eve. What is their great sin? They were deceived. They lacked wisdom in the rejection of God. So Hebrew, biblical, Old Testament thought places ignorance in... Uh, foolishness, and on the other hand, wisdom, place those in moral categories. So here Peter is saying, you are guilty in your ignorance. But their error could be forgiven. And how? Through Jesus. Verse 16. Jesus is the one who has the power to grant healing, and he is the one who granted power for healing in this man. Verse 16 says, in his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. The one you killed, Jesus Christ, is responsible for this man's healing. By his name. So there's an objective way that Jesus is responsible. By his name, by his power. And anyone who is healed by God or saved, there's an objective and a subjective um, element to that. Objectively, God has done the work. It is by the power of Jesus' name, by his sovereign work, this man has been healed. And by God and only by his son Jesus do people have salvation and healing. But subjectively... Faith has to be there as well. Notice what Peter says. In his name, by the power of Jesus, he was raised, and by faith in his name has made this man strong. Peter points out both. The power comes from God through Jesus Christ. He's the only name by which we must be saved, but also by faith. And if that faith isn't there, the healing and the saving isn't there as well, which is crucially important for us to know because you will hear people talk about God and salvation and healing as if, well, that's just God's nature. He has to do it. But 
regardless of response. You know, God will forgive. Doesn't he have to? Isn't that just who he is? He'll do it. And it is true, it is in God's nature to forgive and to heal. But there must be a part that we play. Our responsibility is faith, to believe and to trust. And that is essential for full healing, restoration, salvation. That you must place your faith in Jesus Christ and his power. So the question is, have you? And that's the question that Peter is going to put before these Jews. Do you believe in this Jesus? Do you believe he's the one who can grant healing and salvation to you? Please don't presume upon God's power and obligation to save. Faith must be there. It must show itself, particularly in repentance. And that's where Peter goes next, verses 19 through 26. Peter explains how faith must evidence itself. And then what that will result in, what will be the fruit of that repentance. In verses 19 through 26, we see the healing applied. Healing applied. How this healing can have application for these people, Peter is speaking to. Verse 19. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in in whatever he tells you. It shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken, from Samuel and those who came after him, also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, Then your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So Peter has just explained this healing has come by the power of Jesus. Then he says, therefore, you rejected Jesus. Now here's the application. Repent and believe in him. Turn towards the one you crucify. Repent and believe. Turn to him. And several things will happen. Peter lists three things that will happen if they are to repent. First, repent so that your sins may be blotted out. The first fruit and result of repentance is forgiveness of sins. They will be removed. The language is reminiscent of King David's confession in Psalm 51, which says, Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. It is a word for total removal. And think about here what Peter's offering to them. He has just said, You sinned so bad you killed the author of life the one that God loves and exalted, and you can have total forgiveness. This is the message we send to the world. You have sinned beyond what you could possibly comprehend, and total forgiveness is available for you in Jesus Christ. 
And I've said it before and I'll say it again. There is no sin you can commit that is so great that God cannot forgive you. Your sin is not bigger than Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Your sin is not greater than God's grace. You are not a better sinner than he is forgiver. Don't think that much of yourself or your actions. Your sin is small compared to God's grace and holiness and righteousness and forgiveness and mercy that he gives. They were responsible for killing Jesus himself in the flesh, and here they are, days later, say, you can be forgiven. Your sins can be blotted out. You don't have to wait years. You don't have to go through cycles of penance. It is available for you now. Fully, totally, your sins can be blotted out, removed. And what will happen when that repentance comes, when sins are removed? Second, so that times of refreshing may come from the Lord in his presence. That is what happens after repentance and forgiveness. Times of refreshing. And that phrase, I don't think, is found anywhere in the Old Testament. If it is, let me know. But it speaks to so much of what is promised in the Old Testament where you think of dry ground, the desert, turning to streams of water, fruit growing on the vine, crooked paths being made straight. It is the promise of restoration of what was once dead. Times of refreshing. Do you need refreshing? It may be that you need to experience and know forgiveness again. I find, I think, that this is something that happens when people come to faith in the Lord. I think part of the work God does in them is he makes them exhausted by their sin. And maybe you experience this as well, where at some point you just become overwhelmed, broken, and exhausted by yourself and your own sin. And you're desperate for help. And here Peter says, that time of refreshing is available for you in Jesus. Lastly, the fruit of repentance is the sending once again of Jesus Christ. Peter says, repent that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. This is interesting because there's a clear sequence of events. And Peter says, repent so that God will send Jesus, whom heaven has received. So I think Peter's getting at there. Right now, the resurrected, ascended Lord is in heaven ruling and reigning, but he will be sent once again. And in order for that sending once again, for that second coming of Jesus to occur, you have to repent first. And what he's saying, and I think he's actually speaking collectively to Israelites, here's what must happen first. Your repentance. And this is what God is waiting for to send his son again. Full repentance of the people of God. Full belief, full faith, full coming to Jesus Christ. So I think he's talking specifically to Israelites here and his covenant people, and also broadly to all of God's people. That when God has received the full number of repenting people who belong to him, then the Son will be sent again.
Jesus will remain in heaven until the ultimate time of restoring and full healing that is going to come. But until then, God is patiently waiting for more and more of his people to come and repent and believe in him. So, they rejected Jesus. But has God rejected them? No. Has God rejected Israelites? No. Has God rejected the world? No. God is waiting for all to come to him. How? By faith in Jesus Christ. And Peter's going to show them this faith in Jesus Christ is consistent with all that you've heard and all that you grew up with, all of your old covenant faith. You Israelites, Jesus is the one you've been waiting for. So he makes his case to Jewish people. He says, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of Jewish hope. All the prophets spoke about him. Abraham laid the foundation for him. God sent the gospel of salvation to Israel first. So all of your faith is fulfilled ultimately in Jesus Christ. And he uses the example of Moses. Verse 22, Peter quotes to Deuteronomy 18, says, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. So Israel was waiting for another prophet like Moses that was promised. Now think of what Moses did. What kind of prophet was Moses? Well, he led the people out of captivity into redemption and freedom. He received the law of God and made a covenant with the people. He walked closely with God and dwelled with him, helped establish the people and lead them to a new and promised land. That is what Moses did. And then here's a verse saying, we're waiting for another one like him. At the end of his life, after his life, Deuteronomy 34.10 says, And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. And there are people still today waiting for that prophet. And Peter's saying, he's here. He's Jesus Christ. If you reject him, there will be judgment, just like there was judgment for all those who rejected Moses. But if you'll embrace him, you will find that the prophet like Moses has come. And let's not miss this, because I don't think many of you or any of you here are ethnic Israelites, so this maybe you don't feel like this immediately applies to you. But look at what Peter's doing. He's speaking to Jewish people, and he says, all of your faith, all of your religion, all of that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The longing that you feel, what you've been waiting for, it's here and it's in Jesus. What he's telling them is, this isn't a strange new faith. This isn't something that won't feel familiar to you. Come to Jesus and you will find that you're coming home. And everything you've been waiting for and longing for, you'll find in him. Which I think is something we can tell all people. Because there are a lot of people who are scared of Christianity or scared of Jesus because that just feels so alien and strange to them. I don't know if I can do the Jesus thing or follow him because it's so unfamiliar. And there's a real fear there. But what happens for every person who truly turns to Jesus, they find It's coming home. Everything I've been wanting and longing for is found 
in him. If I've been looking for justice in this world. And I'm exhausted because I'm not finding it. I will come to Jesus and find a true judge. And if I'm looking and longing for intimacy in this world, for somebody to truly know me and know who I am and not reject me and cast me out, we can find that in Jesus Christ who knows you and grants forgiveness. If you desire knowledge and wisdom and truth, I promise you, you will find in Jesus Christ depths of truth and wisdom that you never knew before, and you will find yourself at home. And if you want peace, and are exhausted by the lack of peace in this world and in your own soul, you will find peace in Jesus. Whatever our longing and hope may be, it is made whole in Christ. And full healing is found in him. A couple years ago, a woman in California claimed she had a winning lottery ticket. Good for a $26 million reward. The only problem was she left it in her jeans and it got washed and couldn't verify. She had the receipt. She had the ticket. But she couldn't redeem it or make good on it. And I think that's what Peter's saying to the Israelites. You had the word. You had the law. Yet everything pointing to the true reward Don't fail to redeem it, to make good on it. That's what it's pointing to, to full healing in Jesus Christ. That time of restoration that you've been looking for is found in him. This miracle is a sign of the full healing to come in Jesus. We look forward now to that day of full restoration that will be there when Jesus returns. Do you pray with me? Our Father and God, we thank you that you have sent your Son, you have sent your Spirit out into the world and upon us and in us, and that you, um, by your miraculous work, are saving people. Lord, I pray that we would find fulfillment of all our hopes and expectations, our longings, ultimately, find they are resolved in Jesus Christ and faith in him. And Lord, maintain our hope to know that one day full healing is coming. Full restoration is coming. And while we live um, with the ups and downs of life in this world where some are healed and some are not, we are a people of hope 
because we know our Lord. We know that times of restoration are coming. We look to you. Keep us, Lord, in your Son. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.